Hello! This podcast is still alive! Welcome at Gotta Get Out of This Town, a 2000 emo pop and pop punk retrospective, and today I am having trouble saying the name of the podcast. Hello, I'm Elaine. I'm Fletcher. And I'm Adam. How is everyone today? Much more chipper than this band is going to make you think. (laughs) Yeah, kinda, yeah. So, this is a podcast where we explore, in chronological order, all the charting records tagged as either pop-punk and emo-pop from the 2000s. We have a giant list on a spreadsheet. And today we're talking about the record The Suicide Machines by The Suicide Machines. Does anyone have any experience with this record? Does anyone... I was about to say, has anyone met this <laughs> record before, which is not how... English works, but if anyone has anyone has any past with this record or this band, I do remember their single. When I put it on to check the video, I went, "Ah, yes, I recall this." I don't, but I kind of wish I did because I know that uh, teenage me would have probably enjoyed this album. This is an interesting album. I feel this is a, one of those weird instances because this album is nothing like this band has ever done. And it's interesting when looked in the context of the history of this band. There is actually more history than record in this episode, probably. I have like seven pages of notes on what happened before and what happened after to this band. This is not the only record that charted. They charted previously in 1998. But this podcast doesn't cover 1998. So for our purposes, they, this is the only thing that charted that matters to us. Please ignore the episode we did about a record from 1998. Also, are you saying that 1998 made things are not valid? <laughs> I, I am saying that time literally doesn't exist except from in between 1999 and 2013. Mm. That's hell. You've described <laughs> hell. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's a pretty good chunk of my lifespan, so I'd have to agree. That's hell. <laughs> it's nothing but Will and Grace and Ellen's talk show, Endlessly. With George W. Bush cackling in the background. <laughs> but by the way, I we haven't talked about this last time. We completed 1999. Where is everyone's opinion of, of what charted in 1999 in pop-punk and emo-pop? Surprising. Again, we only hit one record that fell into the category of what I thought this was all going to sound like. So... Very excited, especially because this is where we're getting into 2000, and all of a sudden it's like, well, I didn't see this coming. Certainly interesting. Not good. Adam learned object permanence that year. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... Wait, no. You weren't alive in... Were you alive in 1999, Adam? Yeah. I always forget. I was born okay. in 1998. That's why I said, are you saying that things made in 1998 aren't valid? Oh, no, they just don't exist. <laughs> well, guess I'll have to peace out of this podcast. Bye. Fading away like that photograph in Back to the Future. 
<laughs> yep. But yeah, officially this is the start of season two because I'm organizing the seasons by year until I will probably discover later that that's an horrible idea and have to work it back. Good news, we can retag massively <laughs> on an easy scale. I think we can start going into our usual and start talking about how the suicide machines, where the suicide machines happen, starting with the story of the band, the suicide machines. Start in Detroit in 1991. Is this the opposite side of California, literally? Or am I getting my America geography wrong? Detroit is definitely not California. Yeah, but is, is it like the other coast or something? Yes, it's eastern. Midwest. Well, okay. relative to California, it's east, but it is the Midwest, yes. Yes. It's it's just not coastal. That's what I was trying to stress. Fair. That's That's fair. That's fair. And yeah, the band is originally formed as with the name Jack Kevorkian and the Suicide Machines. I love it. <laughs> Do you know how sad I am that euthanasia is no longer referred to as Kevorkianing someone? And I say that as a pre-med. As a what? Pre-med. I'm partially trained as a doctor. Oh, neat. Everyone forgets that. Probably because I come off like a lunatic. I mean, you just haven't <laughs> told me that yet. Now I won't forget because you've challenged me. There you go. I am a hypochondriac, so I'm also partially trained as a doctor. <laughs> Reading WebMD does not count. Anyhow, when they formed in 1991, they formed with the two constant members of the band for the first run, which are the vocalist Jason Navarro and the guitar player Dan Lukasinski. The bassist and drummer will change a lot, so I'm not gonna keep strict track of all the names involved, because... Uh, this band has a trouble history. So, yeah, the time they formed this band, they, you know, they were young, they were all around 18, but they already, you know, as everyone at the time, has always been in like 40 bands before that. They had more of a heavy metal background. Again, so most people who were in punk at the time probably came from liking, you know, Maiden, Slayer, and so on and so on. So, you know, they, they form a band, it's fun, they play a couple of years in the scene, release some splitter piece and singles on their own and with small local labels, the usual fare, until in 1995 the band is contacted by, this is about five years, well, four years after they started playing, they are actually contacted by an executive of Hollywood Records, which is a major, major label, they owned by Disney, the most punk of companies. So punk. To put it in perspective, Hollywood is who signed the Insane Clown Posse for an album or two. <laughs> awesome. That's not a joke. Huh. I mean, Detroit. Yep. That's actually the connection. They were scouting that region for new talent and thinking, these are hot with the kids. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, and as you may imagine, the first time they get contacted, they don't give a shit and don't believe that they're actually interested. So they just brush them off and are like, yeah, sure, you're interested in us. We are not playing anytime soon, so good luck with that. 
Sometime around this period in 95 is when they lose the Jack Kevorkian name, by the way. I can't find anything more specific than that. Yeah, I imagine it might be when the sign with the label, because that's... I see it described as a little before that. It's just their first album was the, under the Suicide Machine's name. They were still doing split EPs with the essential Kevorkian being one of the titles. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. But yeah, they realized that the label was actually interested in them, or at least that specific executive was, when that executive just showed up in their mom's basement at one of the rehearsals, which is, you know, the perfect representation of 90s punk right there. And kind of Hollywood Records as a whole. They're just showing their nose into places that nobody is expecting them. But yeah, so eventually they start, you know, talking with this executive, they invite him at some more shows. The more entertaining stories is that at some point when this dude actually goes to see them live in like a bar or something, during the show, both them and the supporting band end up being screwed on their money. So they just decide to hide feces all around the bar after that. And that gets them signed because that's good if you're someone from a major label in 1995 in Detroit. Honestly, Detroit in the 90s was a pretty diverse scene musically, being, you know, on the closing end of a lot of electronic stuff and starting their own style there, as well as being the angry upcoming punk and rock that would be picked out through the 2000s. It just seems weird to me that, uh, you know, record executive from major label, just... I imagine, like, someone, you know, in a suit and tie, very well put together, sees this band hiding feces all over a bar, and it's like, yes, these are the ones that I'm gonna hire. This shows me moxie. Again, juggalos are going to get picked yeah, up by... This gets them actually signed. They get flight to LA, they record the demo. By the way, they, we are in California once again. They get flight to LA. I'm, I'm gonna. Ha <laughs> ha! I'm gonna SMH out of this segment. But yeah, they record the demo. The demo sells really well, about 500,000 copies. Some of their actual album will not sell as well as this demo. So yeah, they, they get their contract. They're signed for just. I don't know the number specific, but they're signed for a whole bunch of records. And starting from this demo, they start working on their first full length of P, which is destruction by definition. So Destruction by Definition, first album with Hollywood, not bad. It gets them onto the alternative stations. I meant to look into this and see. I likely heard a bit of the band from this period as well, but nothing jumped out at me looking over the track listing. However, this does send them into a solid multiple years of touring, including one with the band Avail, where Avail bails halfway through because they didn't want to tour with some sellouts. 
uh, not avail themselves, the crews, like I imagine the roadies and stuff. With Overveiled. Oh, okay, got it. Just quit halfway through, which is even funnier because, you know, if you're a band that have like a reputation, you have like leverage. If you're the people who are setting up the life for the band who are quitting, I'm like, you know, nothing against them. Again, like, you know, they're workers, they're great. But also, like, maybe don't just quit not because of your working condition, just because you think one of the bands is a sellout. Maybe that's not... Also, you're working for a band that's big enough to have its own crew who aren't the band. You might be nearing sellout territory. <laughs> yep. There you go. But, but yeah, the, I've listened to Destruction by Definition. It's good. It's not at all what this record that we're talking today is about. And... This is the history of all the stuff that they made. So they start and at their core, the Suicide Machines are a ska hardcore band. They have very, very fast, hard-hitting, hardcore punk music. And sometimes they interspice in between them just ska rhythms with the guitar and stuff. There's not many horns. There are horns only on a couple of songs, but this is like a very... Hard-hitting, fast, energetic, just hardcore punk record. It's very shouty, very aggressive. Sounds fun. It's, it's good. It's, it's genuinely really good. It's like one of the best records in the, the genre at the time, honestly. There are a couple of lyrics which are awkward, and there is one homophobic slur thrown in the record, which I'm not behind it, but... It was the 90s, you know. Aside from that one slur, their politics seems very solid. They have a bunch of political songs. They will make a bunch of political songs later. I don't mind Navarro as a lyricist. Uh, there's a song about shoes. It's, it's a whole song that's about vans are better than this other brands of shoes, which is funny. And it has the line, and this was before Chris Cornell died, at the time, Chris Cornell was the guy in Soundgarden when this was released. So different content from today. But there's a great line, which is like talking about how the shoes are good. And then it's randomly uh, worship Piccoli, don't worship Cornell, which is weird. Piccoli is a character, it's like the stoner character for um, Fast, Fast Time at Richmond High. It's just like, it's a funny line. I really like this record. It has like lots of like tiny, funny moments. It has like lots of energy. Fun fact, Fast Times at Ridgemont High is always weird for me because that was filmed at a school I nearly went to. And the building is nearly unchanged 30 years later. Huh. Ooh, that is weird. Shit, I guess it's, I guess it's closer to 40 now. Uh, the film that was filmed at my university is Clockwork Orange. Nice. <laughs> so... Yeah, different, different tools, yeah. At least you get, well, I guess they're both all-time classics, just very different genres. Yeah. Yeah, Clockwork Orange is probably my least favorite Kubrick movie, I'll be honest. They didn't film movies in my hometown, but there was a, uh, a Trump rally filmed there, so, you know, <sighs> deep sigh. Hey, at least you're still making the news for something that isn't shooting people. Yeah, good point. Do you have any opinion, of any of you Americans, because I don't know about this shit, about this apparent feud between the Vans and Doc Martens that the song was about? 
That's a very different one than I'm used to hearing. I've known some sneakerheads. I don't think either of the any of them would stand for either of these brands. I mean, <laughs> I've definitely heard of Vans versus uh, Converse or whatever the fuck. But yeah, Vans and Doc Martens seem to be in on different spectrums. I find it extremely amusing that this person is singing a very angry, like, hardcore punk songs about how Vans are better than Doc Martens, but also, like, I don't know the context here. I generally think of Doc Martens as being boots. Boots are boots. Sneakers are sneakers. You use them for different things. I don't understand the feud. I'd have to look at the lyrics. Maybe there's a, you know, boots, no Nazis, and punk kind of thing there. I, I don't think so. I'm gonna link it to you. I was about to say, if you have the track name handy, I'll look at the lyrics. Yeah, it's the Vance song. You know, aptly named. Gotcha. It starts with a homophobic slur, but again, it was the 90s. To be fair, I was called that exact thing multiple times. Big man. Yeah, this is basically just, I'm, I'm more indie and crust than you. Yeah. How dare you try to look good. Yeah, it's fun, though, because it's about shoes. Especially when it's calling out Birkenstocks as well. I don't know what that is. Fancier shoes. Okay. I just find the Worship Jeff Spicoli, not Chris Cornell line very funny. <laughs> just like Yeah, this is basically just, uh, how dare you be alt-rock? You should be, like, indie and <laughs> se- don't sell out. Yeah. Which is contrary to what Real Big Fish will sing in their song Sell Out, in which they prompt you to sell out. But that's another Sky record. I have also seen them perform live on the Run Hit Wonder Tour. Take a guess what they were doing there. Was it selling out? Yes, for VH1 playing their single hit. Is their single hit their cover of... What's the name? Take On Me? No, I didn't know they'd covered Take On Me. That's actually upsetting. It's a really good cover. It's generally a really good cover. I very much like Take On Me, so I will be the judge of that later. I like Take On Me too. I think it's a really fun cover. I think the song really... Like, that that synth line really works well when done in a, with a horn in Ska Scale. I could see Ska working with that with the instrumentation. So what I'm hearing is that the one thing that brings us all together is that we all approve of Take On Me. It's a great song. It is. A definite classic, and AHA actually has a much deeper catalog than you would expect, which Elaine might be familiar with as someone from the part of the world where they continue to actually exist. I do not. I am not familiar with the rest of what AHA has done. Outside of the US, and especially in, I think it was South America, they continued touring and recording albums for years. Huh, that's neat. You you talking AHA to me or something? Is that That's no. like a famous podcast or something, isn't it? <sighs> Yes, it is. I have had to hear way too much about that podcast recently because they just started changing formats. I, I, I only know the name, and they made a funny. Now they're talking heads. Ooh, I like to talk. I guess they're way better than you two. Hot take. They ran out of you two. They did one week of Red Hot Chili Peppers and then apparently changed format midway through the show because they went, we hate the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Also, the you two ran out of you two, like... Two records in also, so that's not difficult to believe. The problem is they got the U2 sucked out of them by Incubus. 
We are four layers deep in this joke. I think we need to resurface. Uh, you're also talking about old people music, quite possibly. I don't know what you're talking about. Wow. Okay. So I guess at this point, I'm just going to peel back the layers to the suicide machine and talk about how their touring continued so much, the label eventually gave them a deadline to record new albums. So their second album on Hollywood was recorded in about two weeks on tour. Surprisingly, this caused internal tensions in the band to rise dramatically, especially since some of the members, including their guitar player, Lukaczynski, were um, toxic individuals. And the band as a whole wasn't used to the attention of press and record executives breathing down their neck and constant urges to perform and getting into the fights that occur when you are trying to hash out an album. Yep. This caused their drummer to just leave in the middle of that tour, which, you know, that happens. That's a mood sometimes. Don't blame them. Surprisingly not bad. If you read interview about it by Navarro, he will say pretty openly that like half of the record sucks, which is not incorrect. I think if you cut 11 songs from that 22 song record, it's a pretty good EP. I, I say EP because if you cut the half of that record, that record will be like 14 minutes. So yeah. I don't think, even if you have 11 songs, I don't think it would classify as a full EP at that point. But yeah, it's more scat, there are more horns, there is more political tone that, you know, they're not breaking new ground, but they have some anti-racist stuff, some ecologist stuff, and some straight-up anti-capitalist stuff. You know, by the standards of what we will see on this podcast, that is, you know, slightly more radical than average, which I mean to, again... They don't have any particular wit to their politics. They're more like, you know, capitalism is bad, wake up. But their heart is in a good place. I mean, I will take witless capitalism is bad over any kind of witty attempts at anything other than capitalism is bad. Yeah, the record has the song Strike, which is an incitation to strike as workers. So I'm into that. It's good. It's not as good as their previous record. I don't think it's less energetic. It's more ska. I'm not as into it, but it's still a pretty good record. It still goes pretty hard. There are some heavy metal riffs thrown here and there. And there's more ska stuff going on, but while still maintaining a pretty hardcore punk attitude to it. Lots of shouting still. Difficult to understand what the singer is saying if you don't have the lyrics with you and so that one rolled out in 1998 and flopped dramatically, selling a total of 77k units on its first week, which, again, is in the 90s when you are still hitting real crazy levels of sales. Yeah. And again, the, we mentioned how much their demo sold, so, you know, this is not ideal. This would probably be the kind of thing that might end a band's relationship with a major label, except... They end up on two soundtracks during this period, that of SLC Punk 
and An American Werewolf in Paris. One of these movies is still fondly remembered, and I bet you know which. <laughs> which one is it? SLC Punk. I see. Oh, I was going to see An American Werewolf in Paris. I never saw that movie. Oh, no, no. That movie was not well regarded when it came out, and it has aged horribly. I, I imagine so. American Werewolf in London is a great movie, so I, I don't... Yeah, it's a classic. That's why everyone went, why is this? Didn't this release, like, five years later? Or, like, eight years later? I think it's over a decade. God. Yeah, it's a thing that had pretty much no one from the original thing and basically only capitalized on the name, but it was done a generation later, so you don't have a lot of nostalgia for the original and you're aiming it at that demographic, so why would the original people come back? Also, how many werewolf movies begin with trying to illegally bungee jump off of the Eiffel Tower? I mean, that just sounds cool. Well, the titular werewolf is trying to kill themselves by flinging themselves off the tower. Our idiot hero is trying to do an illegal jump and sees her jump and saves her. And that's how he gets bit. Does he get bit midair? I forget if he gets bit midair, but it's pretty quick after that. That movie moves at a weird pace. Zero out of ten using suicide for plot reasons. I'm, I'm just saying, if he gets bit midair, this movie goes from a zero to a ten out of ten. Because that's just like, cool. I'd have to rewatch it. I just remember that the bungee jump scene pretty much sums up the movie as a whole, especially in the case of why is this here? So by the time the Suicide Machines get around to their self-titled record, they're at a low point. Navarro has distanced himself from writing and was starting to try and break from drugs and alcohol. His son is recently dead. The other band members are all at each other's throats. And the label is going, hey, what if you tried for something that people wanted to listen to rather than that last album? Harsh. This also does not help when they piss off the management of K-Rock. So they were not going to get any airplay in one of the largest tastemaker markets in the U.S. I didn't find any details on why they pissed off K-Rock, but that's just something that Navarro just throws, like, in one of his stories. It's just like, oh, at the time we also, like, they wouldn't play us because we made them angry. But I don't know why. It was just funny. That feels like a someone slighted someone at a party story. Yeah, probably. Oopsie. Because from what I can tell, I don't see a lot of weird womanizing or affair drama from these guys. So it's just, I guarantee it was an interpersonal thing that led to two people flipping each other off. Yeah. No, most of the drama, at least, I didn't go into details in the notes, but from the stories that Navarro says, it's mostly like... Some of the members, including the guitar player, were just sort of like bullies and like very like, you know, alpha macho kind of people, you know, that kind of unpleasantness. And it's just like sort of like at each other's throats for very dumb reasons, generally. It's just like not a particularly, you know, cohesive unit there. 
and doesn't help when like when like you know two of your drummer and your bassist keep changing every couple of years you build up you know a unit yeah it only worked for spinal tap once (laughs) but yeah this is the record that we're talking today it leads to the self-titled record the suicide machines by the suicide machines the record is way poppier and you know it has like a completely different sound we'll talk to it but if you're listening to that stuff chronologically like i did when the first sound of the first single of that first song on the record hits it's baffling you're coming from you know fast guitars just shouting coherently to like just suddenly we're on a 90s adult alternative station it's just like what the fuck is happening here uh, and it's promoted by the single sometimes i don't mind which is the one and only video from this record has anyone watched this video because i forgot to do that i just remember that there's a guy in a dog suit in it and it's acting like a dog and that's the height of comedy i did i skimmed it before we swing out of that i want to talk about how the album's cover is peak end of the 90s because whether it was by their choice or as part of that hey can we make you more appealing to the youth the whole thing is very reminiscent of the swing revival with all of them dressed up like a 50s quartet in suits and jackets with a retro styled drum kit and logo and the album being done in a very vinyl featuring these hit singles and more dress I'm gonna give it a look right now. Yeah, go take a look at it and you will instantly see what I'm talking about. (laughs) See? (laughs) I I don't know whose idea that was, but man, that places this in an era like nothing else. They time-traveled, it's fine. But yeah, sometimes I don't mind's video is... The band is playing in a Pee-wee's Playhouse-style room that has a bunch of giant multicolored things, and a guy in a dog suit is wandering around town doing vaguely inappropriate things, sometimes with the band, sometimes without. If you want to see a bunch of ladies getting humped or having their butts sniffed by a furry, congrats. You can do that. See, I skimmed it. I was just kind of like, ah, yep, okay, dude in a dog suit, cool, cool, cool. Didn't catch any of that, but now I know. Within, I think, 30 seconds, the dog is standing up and taking a leak on a fire hydrant. So it it tells you pretty quick what it's going for. Turns out the people listening to their music actually did mind this song. Navarro says that during live show, people would just turn their back to them and raise their middle finger during the song. That tracks. Must be an interesting sight to see at a, at a show. I've been at shows where that would happen. It's much better that than you get the alternative where everyone is asking them to play their one single and the band hates you. (laughs) Never ask Nada Surf to play popular. I didn't think it was that bad. Yeah. 
it's it's a perfectly okay track. I this starts my problem with them, and that's why I say they aren't a pop band, because okay. pop bands, you know, people who know how to build pop, even in a very you know structured song that you repeat the chorus three times, they're always that little variation. They're always that little you know some flair on the drums, some just like fun things that make the dynamics of the song more varied. They just don't do that. Like the chorus gets repeated exactly the same about five times in the song. And eventually this song is completely fine for the first one minute and 40 seconds. And then you start realizing that they're not gonna do anything even like slightly different for the remaining one minute and 40 seconds. Here's the other issue with that. This is the longest track on the album. It is. They. It is obvious that so far they are a band that wrote one minute, 30 second songs. And now they are writing longer pop songs and they just don't have much experience with that. And you agree that this song could probably be a little bit shorter and it would be better. But I think it's a nice break from like the at least the subject matter of everything else we've been listening to. Just... Just a dude who likes his dog. I think overall this is a good album. This is going to go up there, but it's also in the lit pile of I had low expectations based on your single and you surprised me. <laughs> yeah, lyric-wise it's interesting because actually none of the lyrics on this record were written by Navarro because as we mentioned, he distanced himself by the band during that time. So all of these are from the guitar player and the drummer. The lyrics of every other Suicide Machines record are very different. They tend to be more political. I think Navarro, for the standards of hardcore punk, is actually not a bad writer. He uses, like, a lot of words. <laughs> it's the best way that I can put it. He seems to know more words than some of his contemporaries, which makes his lyrics, like, a bit more interesting. It's not that great, but very closely at the lyrics on this record, but they feel very different in general from what I picked up from what's going on in the rest of the band's discography. There's only a couple of things on here that I would really call out lyrically. Overall, you're not wrong. The writing is incredibly simplistic and nothing really sticks about that. You're being carried on this album by the fact that it's quick. Sometimes it is straight up doing other genres and overall, nothing's really offensive. There's only a couple that leave me going, what? Yeah, no, I've, my, we'll get to that. But my general opinion of this album is that it's very flat. It's not as good as the other stuff they made, but it's also a completely different genre. But back to the song, I hate all of the effects that are going on on the voice. They just don't sound good to me. Yeah, this is the only one that really has this in any... I'm sure there's a little bit of auto-tune work done on some other tracks, but this one has the most artificial, plasticky layer over it. And that's probably why it's the single. Yeah. It also sounds like about... This was the 2000. This sounds about six years late, or at least five years late. This sounds very adult alternative, you know, from the mid-90s. That kind of indie stuff. So, hmm. Doesn't really sound very 2000, like, you know. It's just a little too energetic to be a Dave Matthews band song. Yeah, it is. Again, it's not awful. I don't love it. It's listenable. I think it's too long. I think it's, or at least I think they don't do enough with it to justify three minutes, which is a 
sentence because three minutes is not, you know, we talked about... Three minutes is short for a pop song? Yeah. Yeah, we talked about fucking Jimmy at Ward being not doing enough to justify a 16-minute song. Here we're talking about a band not doing enough to justify a three-minute song, which is pretty funny. I think we should shift into track two, Permanent Holiday. Yeah, where they try to be Green Day. This is not the one that I wrote that about, but I could see that. I just thought this was a quick, in-and-out, simple punk song. It's not bad. I really liked this song. I love how the singer mentioned that this record was the first time that he actually had to learn how to sing. Because, you know, of course, all of this music before this was just shouting. And it was like, oh, I need to learn how to hit notes and stuff. We did a bang-up job. Eh, it's not bad. Yeah, we've heard many worse vocals from people who have already been doing this. I am enjoying it much more than Blink, so... I think Blink, that Blink record, musically, on a pure musical level, is way better than this. I'm talking about on a vocal level. And solely on a vocal level. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No. Yes, on a vocal level, that's a low bar to clear. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, Tom DeLonge is not a singer anyone should look up to. <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying that, like, he had no idea how to sing. He still did better. That's good job. I am to Billie Holiday crooning what Tom DeLonge is to an Iggy Pop actual punk vocalist. Welcome to Gotta Get Out of This Town, a shitting on Tom DeLonge retrospective. <laughs> We've got plenty. Take off your pants and jacket is coming. Oh yeah, the, the permanent holiday is like a cute Green Day-ish punk song with a pretty neat heavy metal riff at the beginning. Fun. Next up is probably my favorite track on the album, The Fadeaway. Really? Please talk about it, because I find the song mediocre and boring. So here's the thing. This is entirely in my lane, the way that very few things we cover on this show are. This feels like an of-the-era alt-rock track. Uh, I see you screaming about how are they trying to be R.E.M. Oh no, oh god. <laughs> but R.E.M.? Not even R.E.M. wants to be R.E.M. Why would you want to be R.E.M.? Why this song? And yes, they, this, this is where it clicked with also something I don't mind. And then this, it clicks like in the most like soft songs of this record. They are trying to be R.E.M. for some reason who was, haven't been relevant for five years at the time. But also, we're talking about something that this is the band doing lyrics that seem more like a mature look back on your life with it, which is not a thing we get often. I know I can only say that so much because eventually it's going to be, here's the older band, here's the ones explicitly aiming for tweens, but 
right now, this is such a nice breath of fresh air to have someone going, yeah, eventually I'll get old and things will start to kind of dissolve. I, I would prefer to fade away, you know, here with you. Sure. I, I, I don't like this. Song. No. Hmm. Uh, no, I, that tracks. I like it a lot too, but I'm not sure I can articulate it as nicely as that. Okay. I'm glad you enjoy it. I have very little to say about this song, except that I, I guess there's a bit of a disconnect that I listened to stuff before, and at this point I'm like, I don't come to this record for an R.E.M. song, and I, I don't think this is anyone like a great example of that. I don't like R.E.M. You just said that you did. This song sounds exactly like R.E.M. This is like losing my religion with like a punkish chorus. I would disagree with my... Yeah, I don't hear the R.E.M. Yeah. in this. Because when I think of R.E.M., I mostly know their singles. I've only briefly tried to dip into their catalog and discovered I didn't like it. But when I think shiny, happy people, when I think, ugh, radio song, that's not what comes to mind when I hear this. Maybe I'm thinking more about some deep cuts of the record, but this sounds like dead era adult alternative stuff, you know, dead... Yeah, this would 100% via VH1 top 10. I get it. Yeah. I don't like Ariam either. That's my problem with the song. Well, the people at home will have heard a snippet of it, and they'll know whether they agree with you or me. Vote, please vote in the comments. I'm, I'm gonna... <laughs> hashtag team Ariam, hashtag team not Ariam. We're gonna make this a team in our podcast. We can't actually turn on comments on our site. Oh, but then people can be mean about us, no. Yeah, let's not. Irritate me on Twitter. I also mentioned R.E.M. because the next record, which we'll talk about, has a really good cover of This is the End of the World and uh, and I Feel Fine. Like, mm-hmm. the, the next record is also like them trying to be pop and it's not great, but it has that one good cover. Like, that, it's generally a good cover of the song. And there are two, we don't have too many words to describe it, so the next song is Too Many Words. Accepted. This is how I decided to move into the next song. I've heard worse segues. And it's an interesting combination because Too Many Words feels like a ska rebuttal of the entire previous track to me. (laughs) (laughs) There is a deep lore to this record. The lyrics are basically going on about the same thing, but Fade Away is just, hey, you know, everything collapses in the end. I want to be here with you at the end of it. But this is just upbeat energy and maybe we don't have to die yeah yeah i don't know my problem with this song is that it has sort of this it's more upbeat but it still has this whole record that's sort of like sickly sweet undertone to it like this jangly guitar they decided for some reason that them going more pop 
means integrating elements of like 90s jungle pop in their music. God, uh, I wish. And they're sort of like... Oh, jangle. I thought yeah. you said jungle pop. <laughs> no, Sorry. This is my non, non, you know, native speaker proficiency with English hitting me again. Uh, jungle, yes, with an E. That's... Gotcha, gotcha. I was thinking, oh, God, I wish they had some Detroit techno sound to this. <laughs> no, no. They integrate, like, these jungly guitars, and they're sort of, like, too sweet, and their melodies are also, like, very simplistic. So it's sort of like... I call this, like, molasses punk. It's just Trickly, like... Trickly, yeah. Yeah, just like... Yeah. It's not bad, but it's not pleasant. Let's avoid too many more words and skip into No Sale, which I think is actually a good counter to that, because I cannot tell if this is a dark comedy or just a misfire at a romance song, because the lyrics are so, um, incompetent. <laughs> Go on. But it's, it's got a good hook. Nothing really drags on it. So musically, it's perfectly fine. But let's just see here. I have the lyrics. Squints my eyes. Is this the one that I thought sounded like an incel song? Maybe? It's, it doesn't sound cruel about it. It just sounds kind of resigned. Oh, that's fair. We've known each other since first grade when I pushed you down and whitewashed your face. While we were playing King of the Hill, yeah, we'd start an avalanche and see who fell. Something hit my head, I was rendered unconscious. If I died on that hill to you, it wouldn't really matter. Okay. Like, the, the common chorus through this is, you know, if I were dead, you wouldn't care. It, but we've known each other such a long time. It's... I can't tell if that's supposed to be romantic or if this is supposed to be a dark parody. I cannot help you with that. I can tell you that there are some, hey, hey! backing vocals in this song, which are hilarious because the song is fairly slow, and then you have this random, like, very harsh punk t things going on, and it's just like, huh. I mean, the hey hey is the dude trying to get the girl's attention because, you know, she still doesn't care if he's dead or not. Is this song about Homer and Mr. Burns? What? <laughs> what? There, there is running jokes in The Simpsons where Mr. Homer has worked at the Mr. This is a Simpson podcast now. Uh, Homer has worked at Mr. Burns' power plant for like years, for like decades, and Mr. Burns can never remember Homer's name and doesn't know who he is. So that's my question. Is this, is this about them? This is a secret Simpson song, and this is a secret Simpson podcast. Okay, now I get that. Also, Ellie, didn't you know he's only worked there for 12 years now? No, he hasn't. Yeah, it's only 12 years. He's only been there as long as Bart's been alive. I have not been keeping up with the Simpsons past, like, season 15 or whatever, so... 
Oh, so you don't know that they've retconned out earlier flashback episodes to the 70s and 80s where now he was actually touring with Lollapalooza and started a grunge band in the 90s? Please say psych. No. Hey, guess who still watches The Simpsons? But th- th- there is an episode about Lollapalooza from classic Simpsons. Yeah, I know. The Smashing Pumpkins and Peter Frampton were there. Hi. Billy Corgan, Smashing Pumpkins, Homer Simpson, smiling politely. <laughs> yes. Hey, I literally pay money to hear a Simpsons podcast on the regular. Go ahead, quiz me. I, I, there, there is this big problem with The Simpsons for me that 90% of The Simpsons that I've experienced are in the original Italian, so I don't always get the English references to them. I've heard, uh, I've heard you guys have a good dubcast. I, I still stand to this day that the Italian dub of The Simpsons is the one instance of a dub being better than the original voice acting. Fight me, Ward. Spanish Homer is not bad. Oh, I hate Spanish Simpson. I also watched it in Spanish. I do speak Spanish. I think it's really bad. Are we talking Mexican Spanish or Spain Spanish? I don't know. I watched it in Argentina. I don't know which one they had. Yeah, I don't actually know what they'd have. Hmm. It was really bad. I don't think it was nearly as good as the brilliant Italian dub. Sadly, the original voice actor of Homer in Italian died, like... Last year, I believe, yeah. No, no. The Italian one died about, like, five, eight years ago. And it's been downhill ever since then. Huh. Maybe it was another international homer who died last year. They're all starting to get up there. That sounds like a magical realism, surreal sentence. Another international horror. <laughs> all the international homers are dying. <laughs> That sounds like a pop-punk track. <laughs> Actually, that sounds like a Boards of Canada track. <laughs> the international homers dying. <laughs> Speaking of things that sound as generic and mockable as that, let's talk about Green. Which is another Green Day song. This is the one that I, if it wasn't for the lyrics, I'd think it was explicitly them trying to do a Green Day song. There are a couple of tracks on this record that are just generic pop punk by Green Day, except not as, like, not as catchy because these dudes are not used to write melodies. Yeah, I have notes about three tracks out of 14 that... Just say something to that effect. Yeah. I actually had to look over and count. Uh, I, I don't have the lyrics at hand, but one of my notes is that the lyrics are weird and they sound like they're written by someone who doesn't know English. The chorus is, we've been told the grass is always greener on the other side, but that doesn't mean we should stop what we're doing on the outside. Outside! <laughs> Mood. Outside, repeatedly times, three times, yeah. Yeah, three. Three outsides. Yeah. So yeah, uh, I could definitely see non-native speaker lyrics. It it does feel sort of like the Tom Tom Club or something. Mm. They're sort of awkward. They lack 
I feel the lack, not the expressiveness, but I, I contest to a lot. This dude's no way less worth than their original, than Jason Navarro, who wrote pretty much all their other stuff on the records, because these are just very simplistic lyrics, which I feel is what I'm trying to get at. Like, all the wordings are very simplistic, very, like, easy, like, short words, and it's just, it's not even a problem, like, it's, I, I don't even, like, I will listen to a song that has great, like, instrumentation, great melody, but has poor lyrics. This has neither. This is just, like, a middling pop-punky track. Yeah, it really does feel like we wanted to just distill down Green Day and try and make that one of our things. one of the two tracks that just lies in its title, Extraordinary. (laughs) So this is one of the four tracks they were proud enough to name on the cover of the album. I don't know why you would put this above so many others, because this sucks. Yeah, I didn't even like this one, and I've liked the album mostly so far. So Navarro does mention that at the time, the people who were writing, I think was the guitarist and the... Grammar, we're listening to a bunch of Beatles. Oh dear. And like, yep, that tracks. This is a punk band trying to be psychedelia era Beatles. Yep. This feels like a strange counterpart to No Sale, the whole we were childhood friends and I'm with you, but why tone? And eventually it clicked for me why this was not working. This feels like, and this is one of the most damning sentences I can utter because this is one of the few albums on our list I remember, and I actually revisited it recently, an SR-71 B-side. <laughs> That's a deep cut. Okay. I owned that CD and dug it out of storage to hear it. All right. So, yeah, get ready to hear me get knives out in a few weeks. Noted. But yeah, that's... That's the sound this is going for. In fact, this is basically the single non-toxic from that album. Just a non-toxic, ordinary day. That's this. Yeah, to me, this is like, without knowledge of the deep SR-71 cuts, I only know the the first popular single. You know Tomorrow, yes. Yeah. Uh, Because it was in an X-Men trailer. We don't just deep cuts. I didn't know it was. It sold me that album. I was an idiot. (laughs) No, I don't know. It's not tomorrow. I know right now, which is the popular song. Wait, really? Huh? Yeah, that's the one with the video. With they're like escaping from the the fans. I didn't know that had a video. I remember tomorrow getting played in a bunch of movie trailers. No, right, right, right now it's like na 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 na. 
It's like the huh. popular. That's what. That's the the single. That's the first single from. That the first was the record. single. Yes. I never heard them on the radio. I legitimately. Wow. Well, that's gonna be a fun recording. It charted. That's the one song they did that charted. Huh. I'll be damned. Extraordinary exists. Without the knowledge of Deep SR-71 cats that apparently Fletch thought they were way more popular than they were, <laughs> this song to me feels like half jungly pop with that, again, jungly guitar starting on a slow melody, and then it goes into like this big, either you can think either of like later stage Oasis or later stage Beatles chorus, and it's... It's a mess, it's terrible, and I am not there for it. Me either. I like how you say late-stage Oasis like it's a terminal diagnosis. (laughs) Isn't it? It was for those boys. I still think that, um, what's that, Don't Look Back in Anger is a great song. I, I will not stand behind anything else that Oasis did. I will stand by more of Oasis than I will stand by the Beatles. Ah, let's not out. The Beatles are problematic on an ethical level. I think they made a lot of influential and great music. I, yeah, I think we have had this discussion one week and I'm not going to rehash it every time they come up. I will probably keep referencing the Beatles positively because they're a band that I appreciate. That's okay. You're allowed to like them. That's why I'm here, is to be the weird third voice that everyone goes, what at? I get that a lot. No, it's fine. I, I've I've heard way more Beatles hate in the last ten years than Beatles love. I think it's completely fair on an ethical level. John Lennon was a horrible human being, apparently. I think my generation, or the one after, is the last that's going to listen to the Beatles. Mm, that, that may be. I hate everything. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, the next track, I Hate Everything. My system's down, got an overload of hate, got a bad attitude, with no intent to change. I've had my fill, I put my cards on the table. Won't take it back, cause today I hate everything. I hate it all, hate my friends, hate the song, hate this bad attitude. I'm sure you hate me too, but I don't care, you know why? When it's over, then you die. It's a new metal song, everyone! We reached new metal! I love this! Yay! (laughs) This song sounds like how a person feels when they, like, haven't slept in a couple days and also, like, forgot to eat (laughs) and are just, like, having kind of a rough time and they're just like, wow, life sucks. Everything sucks. I hate this. But then, like, they do get some food, and they, like, take a nap, and then two tracks later, we get Perfect Day, which is what you come out with once you've had your food and nap. I love how all of you are making little stories by putting together this song. (laughs) I Hate Everything is absolutely this band trying to do break stuff. The vocals are even Fred Durst ass. They rap on this. They have yeah. a rap on this, and it's amazing. It's horrible, but it's amazing. There's a grungy guitar. 
there's scratching turntable. The vocals are coming out like this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna not a thing about the scratching turntable. I'm not sure they know how scratching turntables work in music because they don't just have it as an accent on a thing. It just goes on through the whole song. It's just like scratch, scratch, scratch. It never stops through the whole song. It's great. It's awful. Oh, you it's mean great. four white guys in a punk band didn't quite know turntablism? I mean, also, nothing says I hate everything like having to listen to turntable scratches for multiple minutes straight. <laughs> and then, just as a final passive-aggressive snipe, the last words of this song are, fuck you. Nude. <laughs> the riff on the song is a really fun metal riff. Everything else is just amazing for all the wrong reasons. I love this This song. is in my top three on this album. This would be the, my top song if, if there wasn't an actual song that I really liked on this album. Yeah, much like how you enjoy this one, The Fade Away is my number one. I think this gets my number two. I love that the lyrics are just them listing up things that they hate. It's once again extremely simplistic lyrics, but it's funny. Yeah, it's my favorite things, but growled. Yeah. <laughs> Cold copper tea kettle's burning my hand. I just got something in my pants at sand. That's, that's what this is. I think that this song is the embodiment of the... No talk me, I angie meme. <laughs> I hate my friends. I hate this songs. I hate this bad attitude. I'm sure you hate me too. Mm-hmm. <sighs> I hate the trees. I hate the birds and the bees. I love this song. It's fun. It's very much a fun... <laughs> you know this is just venting or getting things out, but... It still comes together in a way so many other tracks on this album don't. I love yeah. it. I don't. I hope that the comedy in this song is intentional. I really hope so because if so, it works. I'm gonna give them credit. I'm gonna give them enough credit for that because nothing else on this album really is aiming for spiteful. Yeah, what you gonna do? Let's talk about All Out. The title lied. This is the legal definition of a track, but there's no energy. There's no... That existed is all I can say about this one. And back to the barring version of Green Day is my note on this song. Yeah. Like, the intro, to me, definitely was just like a, whoa, hold on, what? I'm like, oh, it's talking about a dude that's, like, cheating or whatever. Okay, cool. That's... Was it? I actually have to look this up. I'm gonna assume that's the bad thing he did. Yeah, I guess that works. Being a bad friend, bad romantic partner. Looking at these, this is basically a bad version of Henry Rollins' Liar. Hey, you know you can always tell the albums that have something going for them? When we just start comparing every different track to, you know what this reminds me of? Better stuff. Because <laughs> I know how occasionally we'll go, oh, this is very pop punk. This is very archetypal. 
the it's the ones that really suck. Your Phoenix TXs where you, we just start going, man, you know what was great? Pogs or other things. <laughs> yeah. When I wake up in the morning. And we move to Perfect Day, which I I have one note on this song, which is, by this point, it genuinely feels like they're coming up with both the melody and the lyrics on the spot. Like, they keep making these very simplistic melodies with these very simplistic lyrics, and it just sounds like something going, I'm singing a song, and it's a song, and it goes like this, la 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 la. Feels like there's a very limited amount of thought put in all of this music. I have almost the exact same thing. Adam, first. Perfect Day is the other half of my theory about I hate everything. This is what you get after the dude has, you know, had a warm meal and taken a nap and then he wakes up and he's just like, oh yeah, I don't hate everything. Life's not that bad. (laughs) So... There's a ancient joke about, you know, if you need to do a corny rap, it's, my name is X and I'm here to say I like to Y every day. This is the pop punk version of that. <laughs> hey, I'm here and I had a good day. It turns out that I'm singing. Yay! Th- that's what this is. It's a pop punk anthem. Not to be confused with the song Anthem, which is a pop punk song. But it's not this song. Right. I keep forgetting that's a thing because 90% of the time, if I hear about Anthem, it's either referring to Ayn Rand or the other disaster of that tier. To be fair, that song is also a fair disaster. So, you know, we're not getting off theme there. Which is worse, the pop punk song, the Bioware game, or the Ayn Rand novel? Oh, I think the song is probably the least worse of those three. I think the, <laughs> so- the song is bad. Don't get me wrong, but, you know, come on. Nobody had to crunch for six months to make the album. Yeah. Look, I don't like Good Charlotte. I'm not comparing them with either Capitalism or Ayn Rand. Eventually, we'll get to the point where, as a Rush fan, I'm going to have to answer for that. And uh, (laughs) when the firing squad comes out, I just want you to know that I'm wearing tin under this shirt. Shoot away. (laughs) Look, I'm also a Rush fan. I, I just ignore the lyrics and anything that's not like the sweet, sweet guitar work and drums. Really? Every one of them was pretty sweet at their job. That's the thing that's amazing about Rush. Anyway, we're done with Perfect Day because we talked about the perfect band. Uh, w- w- wait, when did we talk about the Mountain Goats? You know what? Ellie. You know what? <laughs> All right. I could see that as a pitch. <laughs> Anyhow, let's move to the next one. Sincerity. This is probably the single cruelest thing I wrote was about sincerity. 
Oh. Because whenever this band talks about how they have always been political, this is the track you need to hold up as a counterpoint. This song is just straight up, hey, do you want to make a better future? Make a better you, bro, in a Mark Wahlberg voice for three minutes. I think that this song is an interesting... Like, it's just interesting that this one is on the same album as Too Many Words, just because, like, you got, like, two songs about people talking too much and not being sincere, and neither of them are particularly good. Yeah, this one just kind of undercuts their whole thing about, yeah, we got political chops. It's so strange. Well, I mean, you can't change the world if you're dead. So, considering that people in here were trying to cut off the drugs and alcohol, it could be about that. Well, I'm gonna quote Jason Navarro on what goes on lyrically in this record, where he says, I tried talking to them about letting me write different lyrics for their songs, because theirs were question mark, question mark, question mark, wrong for our band. I had no clue why these two wrote such crazy songs. Too much Beatles? Weed? Self-brought pressure from the label? Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Jason Navarro, who wrote the lyrics for most of their other stuff, wasn't a fan of these lyrics either. <laughs> That's good, because, boy, these sure were... something. Words that got strung together by a person. Did you know I got a burger joint? Yeah, bro. Talking about the music on this, this is actually weirdly interesting... It's like this classic pop-punk intro, and then goes into ska. And I'm not talking like pop-punk in the type of pop-punk that you see go with ska. It's just like this very Blink-182 pop-punk guitar sound that then suddenly turns into like 90s ska, and then goes back to pop-punk. And it has this like, whoa, choruses who are fairly catchy. I don't hate this song musically. It's just weird. And Oh, it's the lyrics that I'm giving criticism to. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm not even sure that I like this song, but I don't hate it because it's so weird musically. Also, can I just say, you have just created a horrible concept of an alternate world where Blink-182 is more ska-like? And I just imagined that alternate world where their next album is Pull Out Your Horns and Honk Off. Do it. The song did it. This is Blink with Sky in it. Huh. This is it. If you want to hear Blink with Sky in it, this is the song. It's not that bad, quite honestly. I mean, yeah. So should we talk about the tape mastering error? I wasn't aware of this. Go on. Yeah, it's track number 10, Reasons. It's under a minute. It seems to start and end out of nowhere, and it feels like an outtake that just made it on here by accident. Oh, right, right. That's the really hard metal song, right? It's borderline like metal yeah. for... <laughs> yeah. It just feels like someone was warming up things, and this just made it on here as transitional glue, but in the wrong way. <laughs> It's transitional glue that... What's the opposite of glue? A transitional scalpel? I guess? Just of the opposite of transitional glue. 
<laughs> I was thinking transitional lube, but okay. Ah. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> yeah, this is so weird because, again, it just stops and start. It feels like a piece of something larger from another band. There's barely any vocals. It's... It's so short, and it just feels like an accident. It's baffling, because this is harder than anything that they have done. Like, they've done pretty hard, like, hardcore punk music. This is even harder than that. This is, like, borderline metalcore for, like, a single minute of this record. It's baffling. <laughs> the The size, the fact that it feels like it just isn't supposed to be, like, it just starts in the middle and doesn't finish... It's really hard to overstate how weird this is. And the next song is such a swerve back into jungly pop that it just it generally hurt my neck. Okay, you say jangly pop. I say goodbye for now is a flogging molly ass sea shanty. That's what this is going for. I, yeah, no, I definitely thought that this was more sea shanty-ish. Oh, I can hear that. I can hear that. Yeah. You love me a sea shanty, but I'm not sure if I like this one. It's a very weird thing, and especially with the title being Goodbye For Now, I feel like this was supposed to close the album. That's what I was thinking. I was like, why did put put... <laughs> yep, but it doesn't. The best song of this record closes the album. Oh, and what does it say that the uh, best uh, song on the album is a cover? Mm, oh, this really... is a... Right! Yes. Now it makes more sense, this song. It's a cover, okay. Yeah. Also, I feel really bad because my take on this version of I Never Promised You a Rose Garden is Katie Lang, Save Me, the worst version of this song I've heard. Now, okay, now I get why I like this song, because they didn't write it. <laughs> Sorry. I, yeah. I, 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 I'm, I'm now assuming that all the things that I like from this songs were from the original song. Probably. Fun, fun fact, now that you remind me that this is that song, they originally recorded this song as a joke because the people from the movie SLC Punk asked them to like, oh, record something from that era. And they, as a funny joke, decided to record something that was not a punk song from that era. But they put it in the movie anyway. Yeah, it definitely works in the context of that film. Again, I think SLC Punk is still okay. So, what do y'all think about this record here? The Suicide Machines, but the Suicide Machines, the first pop record by the Suicide Machines. Definitely up there in my rankings for the show. Not gonna buy this instantly tier, but 
It's enough that I'm probably going to dig into some of the rest of their catalog tonight, especially with you saying, hey, their prior stuff is very good punk, and their later stuff goes to some interesting places that are not trying for this genre. I thought it was enjoyable. Okay, uh, you enjoyed this record more than me. I think this record is awfully flat. It has some downright bizarre songs on it, which I feel make it interesting as a novelty. Like, again, even the starting song, when you're coming from the previous record, it's just baffling. It's just like, oh, this is what they're doing? Oh no. And then you move into, you know, some of the songs that have strings on them, which are like, ah. Uh. And then you have a new metal song, which is the high point of the record, because it's hilarious. <laughs> and you have the little, like, small metal hardcore punk interlude by one minute but you know the only times this record entertained me is when it was funny and baffling but whenever this record tried like in earnest to make catchy and good songs i think it fell extremely flat for me i don't think it's bad i think it's extremely nothing i would take 50 the suicide machines weird experiments that go awry or fail over a single extra Phoenix TX album, because that was such a void. Agree. 100%. That's what I'm saying. It's not actively awful. It's just, like, extremely flat. This goes... I put this in the same tier. Like, this is probably third or fourth place for me out of all our stuff, just because it's the same thing as Lit, where I came in with expectations, and at every turn, it didn't beat those expectations, but it did leave me going, you did what now? I want that. I want surprise. This is a great surprise album. I think the lit record was way more interesting than this one, though. Yeah, I'll give you that. You notice I said, this is behind the lit record. That's fair. This is pretty much my second worst album. Like, this is right above Phoenix DX. Ouch. Okay. If we hadn't talked about Phoenix DX, this would be the worst record. That's interesting, because this is my top record. Mind you, I did not listen to the Jimmy World record, so it is not in the running. You, 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 um, you have to listen to that record. That record is so good. So good. It's so good. You really do at some point. It's quite good. Yeah, but I, like, smiled while listening to this. Have not done that with any other album. I hadn't smiled in 40 years. <laughs> Basically. The Phoenix DX story? I think the fact that we could all have such different takes on this definitely says this is an album that was worth discussing. And I feel that already means we have something good here. Yeah, the story of this record is also interesting. Again, like a band that was doing something completely different, pushed by the label into doing a pop record, while their main songwriter just took a hiatus while everyone else was writing this record. It's just like, it's such a confluence of bizarre events that lead to this weird-ass record, which is sort of fascinating. That's great, it starts with an earthquake, birds of snakes and aeroplane, Lenny Bruce is not afraid. Let's go!
the aftermath of this record is also fascinating because at this point, The Suicide Machines by The Suicide Machines was a mild commercial success. You know, it, it definitely beat the dire sales of their last one. But as they started trying to head back into the studio, the band was in pieces. Nobody could really stand each other, mainly because Lukaczynski was a toxic son of a bitch, according to Navarro, to the point that they would drive to live shows in different cars. They had fired their manager and they couldn't leave the label because you do not get out of a Disney contract unless Disney says so. <laughs> In 2001, as this stuff was going on, they finally record their next record, Steal This Record. Then during that process, the bassist leaves the band once again to be replaced with someone else. This is their first record with digital production it is, and Navarro fucking hates this record. If you read his comments, it's like, you know, at least they let me sing in the previous record. In this one, it was just like, they just modified everything with digital production, and he hates it. On a... I don't want to say objective level, I think on a less... Technical level? No, like, this record is less funny than the previous, it's less funny than the record that we talked about today, there's no new metal song on this record, on a, is this good in a good way? I think the still this record is better than the previous record. They start implementing more of their stuff in the pop sound. There's more ska, there's more punk in it. It's not that good still. They're not good at writing catchy pop songs, sorry. But there is a really good cover, as I mentioned, of This is the End of the World as You Know It and I Feel Fine by R.E.M. It's a really good cover of that song. You gotta say, that's not a hard song to cover. That song is good by itself. And if you had, like, heavier guitars, you're making it better because everything is better with punk guitars on it. So it's not a difficult song to cover, but it's a solid cover. This is funny. That cover will probably be something that I listen just, like, unrelated to this podcast project. That's something that I added on my Spotify playlist, on my Spotify library. It's a good cover. The rest of the record is bad. It's not great. I think it's better than this one. I have a theory. Perhaps the reason why their album titled Steal This Record did not sell well is because instead of purchasing the record, people stole the record. I mean, Counterpoint. System of one year later, yeah, yeah, Steal This Album by System of the Down sells pretty well. <laughs> yeah. I tried. I tried Suicide Machines. I actually had to look up in the background. Wait, was that the same year? No, there's one year difference. <laughs> yeah. I will also point out in the defense of the band, this was the era of everything switching over from analog to digital, and it was a rough transitional period. Was this about the year when the Loud Incomatorium by. Mars Volta came out? 2003 was Deloused. Okay. Deloused in Commentarium is like one of the records that mostly suffer, I think, from digital production. I, I, I cannot objectively judge this record because the mixing on it just gives me a headache. See, closer to that and relevant to our earlier discussion, this would have been half a year before the very infamous Vapor Trails by Rush. Hmm. 
Yeah. And that's considered to be straight up one of the most fucked with compressed albums on the entire era, to the point that the band actually did a remaster of it in under 10 years with a new producer. The Loudness Wars are, not to get all audiophile here, a fascinating subject as engineers were playing with new tech and trying to just boost the volume of everything they were working with, but it flattened things so there was less dynamic range on the album. I mean, even aside, I am not a huge audiophile. I can say that some of the records from this period of time Straight up, with me even not knowing about this stuff until I researched it later to check why is this record giving me a headache, I cannot listen to them in their original mix. They literally give me a headache because the sound is weird and loud and not balanced properly for the human ears, or at least for headphones. I listen to most of the things that I listen with with headphones. Oops. And yeah, that's the kind of thing that's made to be played on a stereo, on a radio as ambient to catch your attention, not blaring through your skull. Uh, a quick summary, if you don't know what we're talking about with the loudness wars or dynamic range. Basically, if you play a standard song from recordings, some things are going to be quieter than others. The guitars will likely be louder. Drum hits will be louder than hitting the cymbals. Vocals might be a little less at times, but you want to boost them some. No dynamic range means you are boosting the volume of everything involved as high as it can go so that it just turns into a flat mess. If you were to look at them in some kind of audio editing program or analysis, the wave is basically a brick of sound. It's miserable. Yeah, it's rough. Yeah, and yeah, this was not the only problem that Navarro had with the record, but it definitely played into it. But yeah, it, it isn't a great record. It's it's a sequel of this record, but with more ska and punk stuff. Not great, and it in fact performs quite poorly. Doesn't even chart anywhere. Not even on the Billboard Hit Seeker, which is the indie-ish chart that they have. Hey, up and coming, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, by this time, the band is angry at each other, it's angry at the label, and it's angry at the world. They hate everything. So they decide to fulfill their contract obligation by releasing a greatest hit. So their time with major labels at an end, the band moved down to the indies, and Side One Dummy Records picks up a match and some gasoline in 2003, and just to really put this into the middle of the Bush era... War Profiteering is Killing Us All in 2005, going back to a hardcore punk sound with some ska influences. Those two records are pretty good. I listen to them, they are back to their original sound, they are harder, they are angrier, they have basically no pop in there anymore. It's once again back to ska core, and it's good. They, they are back to their political shit, and it works. Again, no particular wit, but they are angry and they'll take the suicide machine over American Idiot by Green Day every day of the week. They seem way more aware of political issue than most people, you know, most people in the pop, in the mainstream at the time. So, they're good. They're good, angry, Bush-era, political, hardcore punk record.
The uh, Suicide Machines were much happier with their music by 2005, but never really became happy with each other again. War Profiteering is Killing Us All was basically scraped together from a series of unfinished songs, and they started touring again throughout Mexico, losing members over the course of the whole thing. Eventually, only Navarro and Lukaczynski were left, and a couple of temporary members were in the band. Jason Navarro's description of the event that ultimately led them to disband was as such. The crowd was intense that night. The rented guitar head was wrong, no second channel. Dan was frustrated and drunk. We got off stage, and the crowd wasn't leaving. They were chanting, and this went on for what seemed like an hour. Dan wouldn't do more songs. People started throwing things at the stage, glass things. Promoter asked us to play, or he was going to have to call the police on the crowd. Dan wouldn't, so we went out without him and played the van song. It wasn't a cool thing to do by any means, but it had to be done. After that, Dan said in the alley in the back he was done. He quit. I won't go into how bad he fucked me over, but that was that, and the tour of Mexico was cancelled. I knew this was the end. Yeah, so basically they had this hell tour where slowly everyone quit, which is pretty, like... Natalie there. Uh, and yeah, that, that that was the story of the Suicide Machines for the first run, which is interesting. And at this point, we have where they are as of the modern day. Where are they now? Where, I, I don't know, that, that's, a, that's a sentence that people say on a VH1 show. Where are they now? Tell me. Jason Navarro started a series of bands with a heavier sound in the wake of this. Hellmouth, Break Anchor, Jay Navarro and the Traitors, and continued to play in a band that he recently started with their bassist at the time of war profiteering, Left in Ruin. Lukashinsky ended up moving to Japan, of all things, where he currently owns the guitar stores and plays in the mostly Japanese band, the one thought moment. Back in the United States of America, in 2009, the band reforms briefly for a charity concert with the war profiteering formation. So everyone was from the war profiteering era, aside from the guitar player, because wasn't in America anymore. And also I'm pretty sure everyone hated Lucetsky at that point. And Justin Malik replaced him on the guitars. As this thing goes, generally, rejoining one time leads to rejoining another time, and then you do another show and another event and whatever. And then suddenly it's tour. Yep, eventually you just start touring regularly again. As of last year, the band was touring regularly. And especially if you look at the interviews that they have, there are some interviews on YouTube from them recently. They just seem in a way healthier place. They just seem chill. They are all in the same room at the same time, <laughs> talking <laughs> to the interviewer, which is, you know, important. Yeah, Jason Navarro recently opened an Instagram account where he just tells stories about... It basically just went through all of the records that he owned from the band and just told stories about each of them, including, like, weird singles, tapes from their beginnings and stuff. It's really neat. You can find him at... Instagram.com slash J Navarro Traitor J. A lot of the stories from this episode have been sourced by that, but there's still like a bunch of stuff if you're interested in them. It's a good read. And there's just some really cool stuff to see in there among the media and various things. Yeah. 
And, and yeah, and this year they actually released a new full LP of new materials in the first in 15 years since War Profiteering. And it's called Revolution Spring. It's pretty good. It's actually my favorite records of them aside from the first two records. It's like my third favorite record that they made. It's pretty good. It's poppier, it's more positive and less angry but not in the way that the record that we talked about today was. This feels more on their term. This feels way more consistent with their sound. It's very political, very appropriate for, you know, the current socio-political turmoil of today. Yeah, it's, it's again, it's like solid hardcore punk and ska mixed together with some solid, you know, solid energy, a bit more of an upbeat energy to it. There are actually some melodies. It's not a melodic record by all, but there are some melodies that work better than the record that we talked about today. They're self-titled. And yeah, it's unexpectedly like a good continuity of sound for something that came out 15 years after the last record. It's good. I actually recommend it. It's not, it's, it probably won't end up in my top 20 records of 2020, but it's a solid record. It's a solid recommendation. Okay, I now have to know, what are your current top three records of 2020? I'm going to open my spreadsheet and I'm going to tell you. Okay, so right now my top three records are Time Pop, Time Pop, Time Pop, Time Pop, Time Pop by Time Pop. Uh, what else? They're not in order yet, but I can you know quickly tell you of the top one, which are my three favorite. Uh, so yeah, Time Pop, Time Pop, Time Pop, Time Pop, Time Pop by Time Pop. It's a great noise pop record. What's Tonight to Eternity by Cindy Lee? which is a good dream pop lo-fi record. Everyone loves it. I think I need to give it a second listen. I really liked it on a first listen, but I I also have a little symbol for things that I need to re-listen because I'm not convinced if I only like it or I love it, but it's there. Mm-hmm. And Love Core by Archards, which is a really nice matte pop record. And I love Archards. They, their first record was really good. And the second record is even better. Oh. Special mention to Zoo by Necritalki, which is an awesome pop rock Japanese band. They make really good, interesting, again, matte popish record with like this very adorable, like high pitched vocals. I love them. They're great. They I discovered them through the algorithm by YouTube, and I absolutely I I don't think they're in my top three, but they are there. Another shout out for hipster reason completely. The new Shinsei Kamate-chan record is amazing. It's a great noise pop record, but it ended up in my 2019 spreadsheet because they released it on like the 20th of December as a preview. And so it's not going to be in my 2020 list, but it's going to be in my 2019 list. But Shinsei and Kamate-chan are great. Anyhow, this is, this is Elaine Talks Modern Music. I am impressed because uh, you have me beat in that you have bought more than five albums so far this year. Oh, I tend to listen to about uh, 200-ish new records each year. That's why I have a spreadsheet for them. Got it. Still, definitely glad you've got me beat there, and I will keep my damn fool mouth shut, given... What? Uh, no, I, I want to know what, what are your top records this year? Uh, The top three would be... Thundercat's new album, I believe it is. It is what it is. And then right behind that, and 
second place is definitely Fetch the Bolt Cutters by Fiona Apple and Possession by Joy Wave. Oh, yeah. I, I have those on my list of things to listen, which is also a thing that I have. It's in the same spreadsheet. I would definitely prepare a happier chaser for after Fetch the Bolt Cutters. <laughs> yeah, I, I figure. Uh, but, you know. Yeah. I, again, if, if no one... I, I have a deep love for spreadsheet. I, I think my so far my spreadsheet of the music I listen, which I've been working on for about, like, five years at this point... It's my masterpiece because I keep adding functionalities to the spreadsheet every year. Yeah, spreadsheets are really neat. Yeah. I am I, I, I am I am a cool normal human being. My passion is spreadsheets. Yeah, you know what? I will agree. This was our retrospective on the Suicide Machines. We went through their whole history in one episode. And still didn't break two hours. Uh, two hours ten of footage recorded, but it would probably... Yeah, after editing it would probably be less than two hours. Do we, do we, want, to, do we want to say something extremely awkward or embarrassing before we move to the section where I say things? I believe this is the point where I'm supposed to throw up my left fist and say Kevorkian was right. Wow, that got dead silence. I don't know what these things mean. Oh, wait. Are you too young to know who Jack Kevorkian was? Yes. Oh, my God. Um, Jack Kevorkian was a doctor who invented a literal suicide machine for patients who desired euthanasia when that was still illegal. Oh. And he would eventually lose his license and I believe be tried for manslaughter because of it. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, he was a hero pushing for people to go out on their own more dignified terms, and I stand by that statement. That sounds fair. Seems legit. Same song, different chorus. So, this was this episode of Gotta Get Out of This Town, a 2000 pop-punk and emo-pop retrospective, and we talked about the Suicide Machines, the whole of their career, which, aside from their self-titled album, which was amusing but not my personal favorite, it was an interesting thing to discover, generally. Now, after listening to this episode, if you have thoughts, if you have ideas, if you have a functioning brain that needs to communicate with other human beings out there in the world that surround us, you can email us at getoutofthistownpodcast at gmail.com. You can also try and follow us on Twitter at GGOOTT Podcast. Feel free to at us. I will reply to you. And if you want to listen to more of us, you can go on our website when we have all of our episodes, we have our spreadsheet, we have a contact form if you want to contact us in a different way. Getoutofthistown.com is where you want to be if you like this podcast. Just go there, and now you find all of the info, including links to all of the platforms that we're in. 
iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. We are everywhere. We're in your house. We're hunting you. This is a slasher movie now. And if you don't want to end up like all people who have sex in slasher movies, which they don't end up well, you can rate and review us on iTunes. It helps us. And maybe we'll spare you. Next week, we'll talk about The New America by Bad Religion. I'm so excited for this one. You're also going to get to hear what it's like when I'm at the wheel. I asked Fletch to do the research for next time because um, I am sleepy. Um, <laughs> I am, constantly. Through all of my life. <laughs> so that's what's going to be next. So... This was the episode. Do you have anything to plug, Fletch? You can find me on Twitter at BustRider, which has links to all of my various products because I am just turning that into an easy hub and using my website to redirect people rather than give a seven-minute speech at the end of everything I record. Oh, but I love that seven-minute speech. I will give you the seven-minute speech next time, I promise. Okay. Do you have anything to plug, Adam? Nope. You should get a seven-minute speech, too. Mm. Next time. And you can find me at ACC the Moon on Twitter. And if you want to support us, we don't have a Patreon, but we have started a consulting agency for record labels. So if you are unsure if you should have your newly signed Skakor band go pop, please contact us. You can find us at the name Probably Not Incorporated on the yellow pages. Good night, everyone. Good night, y'all. Good night, everyone. I've got the time to stick around I'll catch my flight like a pop pocket And get out of this town What's on your mind? There's no point left to keep your image down Let's terrify